0: Hey there, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Ah, sleep, I love it. Do you love it? If only I could get more of it and get better at it and wake up each day well rested. Some days it works, many times it doesn't. Sleep can be hard, but does it have to be? Sleep is critical, so are you getting enough? And are you getting the right kind? We all know we need sleep, but knowledge is not enough. The focus of this episode is not to convince you why sleep is important, but how to monitor and change your sleep to get the most out of every night. In particular, for athletes who stress their bodies, sleep is critical. How do we make sure we get what we need and avoid some of the disruptions and issues that can lead to sleep impairments? We'll dive in. When it comes to monitoring sleep, there are a host of new gadgets that tell us both about our sleep volume and the stages we've hit. Do they work? We'll discuss the latest findings on sleep monitoring, what works, what doesn't, and what to do with all that data. Finally, we discuss how to take all that information and change our behavior. Easier said than done, but hopefully today's guest will help us all sleep more soundly tonight. Dr. Shona Halson is an associate professor in the School of Behavioral and Health Sciences at Australian Catholic University. Prior to her current research on sleep, she was a senior physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sport for 15 years. She has a PhD in exercise physiology and has over 100 peer-reviewed publications in the areas of sleep recovery, fatigue, and travel. Dr. Halson has served as the director of the Australian Olympic Committee Recovery Center for three Olympic Games. She has helped countless athletes better understand the importance of sleep And we're excited to bring her knowledge to you today. In this episode, we'll also hear from Dr. James Hull, a respiratory physician who touches upon the importance of sleep when it comes to fighting infection. And we'll hear from Cameron Cogburn and Erica Clevenger, who both detail their sleep hygiene and routines to improve sleep quality. Time to put on your PJs. Let's make you fast. Well, today we're sitting down to discuss the all-important topic of sleep, and we have a wonderful expert from Australia, Dr. Shona Halson. Welcome to Fast Talk.
1: All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. We all know sleep is really important. I think some of us do better at taking that to heart. Other people maybe ignore it a little bit too much. Today, though, we want to talk a little bit more about how to monitor it, how to change your sleep patterns and behavior, but I think we, we have to start with the question of why sleep is important and briefly talk about that. So Dr. Halson, I want to turn it right over to you. It's nothing we haven't heard before, but could you give us the brief overview of sleep's importance here?
1: Yeah, and it is good, I think, to to touch on some of this because I think we're, you know, the more we research and the more we understand, you know, it just increases our knowledge in terms of how important it is. And given that, you know, our body, all our body functions run off a body clock. Um, Sleep obviously becomes you know really important for a range of different factors, so we know it 's super important for the brain, for our cognitive function, for our reaction time we know it 's really important now for mood um, depression anxiety emotional regulation. We know it's important for the immune system i think everyone knows what it feels like to not um, not sleep much and then get sick um, and of course for the athlete it's really important for uh, things like muscle repair and recovery and and you know there's lots of hormones that are released during sleep um, that become um become really important for the athlete's ability to to recover and then i guess the last one which is you know, relevant for everyone, not just the athlete is, you know, metabolism. So we're starting to really see this um, relationship between some of the hormones associated with um, uh, feelings of, you know, satiety and hunger, and as well as a gut microbiome. So you could pretty much go through um, the entire body head to toe, and uh, sleep's important for pretty much um, everything that we do for our health and well-being.
0: Makes it sound like we could do 15 episodes on sleep. Sleep, yeah, sleep, was, and fill in the blank. Sleep and recovery. Sleep yeah. and performance. Sleep and metabolism. Sleep and whatever. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yes. Yeah. I feel like sometimes I can when I did that little introduction on you know have what sleep's important for. I always say to people I could bore you for hours talking about <laughs> how important it is, but so that was as quick as I could possibly do it. I think
2: in some ways we're staying the obvious, but there are times where it is worth pointing out the obvious and. Reading your research, there were a couple themes that you brought up, and and one of them is the fact that really one of the most important functions of sleep is restoration at multiple levels. And likewise, you at one point wrote about recovery and all the different recovery modalities but said, well, athletes are always looking for these new ways to improve recovery, be it compression clothing, be it ice baths, whatever new modality is out really none of them compare to the recovery benefits of sleep.
1: Yeah. And you know, the way that I think of it, the way that I try to explain to to people and the athletes that I work with is, you know, I think of recovery as a pyramid and, you know, you've got to get the base of your pyramid right first before you add all the fancy things to the top. And I, you know, things like your sleep and, you know, um nutrition and training you know that's the foundation of your pyramid but what i see a lot of um a lot of athletes do and, and what a lot of people want to do is just take the the quick easy simple fix um that well often isn't really a fix it's just you know something that they think is is that they're ticking the box for doing their recovery when And if you think about it, we're supposed to spend a third of our lives asleep. Um, And, you know, that's a significant period of time in comparison to say, you know, I am an advocate for ice baths in the right setting, in the right situation. But, you know, you might be talking 15 minutes of your day um, in comparison to sleep that should be, you know, for athletes, maybe around nine hours. Um, so I think it's one of the, you know, we call them the big rocks. I think it's one of the, the key aspects. It's, for most people, it's not that difficult to do. Um, it's just a matter of getting your behaviours right. And I think that focusing on that rather than focusing on the, the really small things that may have less of an impact when you don't have your sleep nailed and you're not doing that properly, I think that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me.
2: So you're saying when I sit there at night with my Normatex on and my recovery mix and decide to skip sleep, that
3: you're doing
1: work it too wrong.
0: wrong. You're doing it wrong, Trevor. <laughs> Damn it!
1: <Doing> it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, I did, there was that phase, and I'm sure it was worldwide where you know people were waking up in the middle of the night to ice their injuries. Um, it got it got a bit of a trendy thing to do, and I was and it just always amazed me. I was like, why would you, you know, interrupt the best recovery strategy we have for you know. For, to, to, um, to ice and injury. So, yeah, people do interesting things at times, but, I, you know, for me, it's about protecting sleep. I think it's the best strategy we have, and we should do, you know, as many things as we can to make it as good as we can, knowing that it's not going to be perfect all the time, but, you know, consistency and good habits is, is key.
2: Dr. James Hall, respiratory physician at Royal Brompton Hospital in London, had some useful insight to add to this conversation about sleep, and how it's integral to optimal performance.
3: I mean, I think, you know, sleep is massively important. Um, As you you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's crucial to so many uh, different aspects of athletic health. There's certainly evidence that impaired sleep quality increases the risk of respiratory tract infection. Um, as it does for any infection, really. But when you look at the factors which could make an athlete more vulnerable to respiratory, uh, respiratory tract problems, infection is the key issue, as I said, I think, in the previous podcast. Um, and so high-quality sleep um, of, a significant, of a sufficient duration um, um, is, is important to increase immune function and to protect against respiratory tract infection. The other key thing is that when you're asleep, you can't modulate your breathing pattern and you can't modulate the way you breathe. And so if you've got natural sinonasal problems and you've got blockage in your nose, then effectively you default into an oral predominant breathing pattern. And that has problems associated with it, including drying of the upper airway, um, waking up with sore throats and issues with drying the lower airways and increasing uh, propensity to, for instance, asthma. So, you know, you don't want to overlook the, Performance of your respiratory system overnight um, by having those treat those conditions properly treated, ensuring you've got adequate nasal flow. So, here's the question I've
2: really wanted to ask you uh, when we right from the, the day we said let's set up this episode. They always talk about eight hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep. That's what you need. What is the basis for that? Does everybody need eight hours of sleep? And I'm also going to point out, you even said in one of your studies that we go through all the stages of sleep in about a 90-minute cycle. So wouldn't that mean we'd need either seven and a half hours of sleep or nine hours of sleep? What's, What's the basis behind eight?
1: Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that, um, you know, over the years, you know, when there's been sleep deprivation studies, um, people often have seen effects when you start to um, take sleep lower than that eight hours. And it's just, you know, the third of our lives is sleep. It's just, it's just a figure that has sort of been around for for quite a while. Um, And I think there's some there are some problems. There's some benefits to that. Um, knowing that a lot of athletes don't get eight hours, at least recommending that is a starting point. Um, but I also think we're all really different, and some people can get by with less sleep, and some people need um, need more than that. And the thing around it's interesting around the ninety the ninety minute cycles, and that's something that again is, is a little bit of a myth. And we've we've there's very few studies that have actually looked at the gold standard of sleep monitoring, which is polysomnography, um, in athletes. And we did, we've done a little bit of work. It, 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 we haven't published it yet, but a little bit of work in that area. And some of the athletes go through very different cycles than 90 minutes. Um, some of them are much, much um, shorter than that. Um, so that's a bit of, that's again, one of those kind of myths that's kind of prepped around um, when it comes to sleep. But I think, you know, giving athletes a little bit of a target is not altogether a bad thing, but we do need to individualize it a little bit and get the athletes to think about their own sleep need so for example you know I'm sort of someone that copes I don't cope really well with under seven hours of sleep Um, I I sort of know for myself or you know I get through the day all right but I'm not I'm not as good as I could be and I think if you talk to people and you get them to think about how they feel when they wake up and how they get through the day you can kind of get them to work out their own sleep needs if they start to sort of pay attention um, to, to their own sleep so it is highly variable that we know there's a genetic component to sleep um and so you know to, to give you know to say just a straight eight hours um isn't probably doing it um doing the athletes justice that said
0: dr hulson uh athletes certainly need more could you speak to why they need more it seems like there might be an obvious answer but could you go into some of the detail there
1: Yeah, we do believe that athletes need more. It's one of those, um, it's that type of research that's really hard to do um, to actually prove that. But we do believe they need more. And that's really coming from the perspective when you think about what sleep is, it's to restore the, the, the mind and the body. Um, and to get and to prepare the individual for the next day if you've got an athlete who's done you know six hours of training in a day um, if they've been doing some mentally challenging things like you know you can think of you know uh, uh, you know NFL players who are watching a lot of video during the day you know or you're t- trying to teach an athlete some new skills you've got a combination of some f- Um, physical processes that need to be recovered from and some mental processes as well. So the idea that potentially, particularly from a physical side, um, that athletes might need more sleep is coming from that perspective that um, they need more repair and regeneration than the average person who's not doing as much um, physical exercise.
2: What I found interesting in some of your reviews was you point out the fact that Most of the research on sleep has been in people who have some sort of of sleep dysfunction and that there's actually not a lot of research on both athlete needs and athlete their actual sleep behavior. But it seems the little bit that has been done, and a lot of it is actually your research, is that athletes tend to get a little less sleep and their sleep seems to be lower quality than non-athletes.
1: Yeah. And that's, it's so interesting to me because it was definitely not what we expected initially. So if you're to look at the research around exercise and the general population, exercise is great for sleep for most people. Um, So for, for the general population, Exercise really helps you get that good, deep quality sleep. It gets you tired, helps you sleep. But for athletes, it seems like um, there's something else um, that might be interfering with sleep. And I think there's a couple of things. I think there's some unique demands of being an athlete that can um, interfere with um, interfere with sleep, and it can be, you know, everyone has stress in their lives, but you know, for athletes, it, you know, it might be unique stresses around selection or, you know, performing in front of, you know, hundred thousand people, whatever it might be. So there's some sort of unique stresses there. There's, the, there's some stresses potentially from a physical perspective. So, you know, any contact sports, um, athletes, you know, runners who have, you know, muscle damage or soreness, or if you're in the gym and you've got some soreness there, you know, there may be some issues um, from um, from being sore. Um, and then also just, it, it's potentially just, you know, when we look at So in Australia, for example, our swimmers get up really early. Our triathletes get up really early. Our rowers get up really early. And I understand to a certain point why that occurs. Um, However, it's just not great um, for protecting an athlete's sleep. It's really hard to get enough sleep when we wake them up so early. Um, So I think there's a combination of things that athletes do. And, you know, we're talking a younger generation now where, you know, social media, gaming, caffeine, you know, that they're all, you know, pretty pretty prominent in younger athletes' lives. Um, but then there's also things that we do um, that can mess up with their sleep in terms of schedules and travel and competition times. Um, but, yeah, I think there's, it's a bit of a perfect storm with athletes for reasons why they potentially don't sleep as much as um, the general population. And that's actually kind of scary because the general population doesn't sleep well anyway. Um, so I think it's a whole lot of factors that go into um causing the athletes not to sleep as well as we'd like them to.
0: It's such a, it's such a big question, I think. But what biologically happens during sleep that, that uh, facilitates this restoration that you can't get at other parts of uh, or in other aspects of life?
1: And it is a good question. I'll try to answer it short and simple. Um, But essentially, as I was saying, you know, our body runs on our body clock. So there are things that we are designed to do when we're awake and there's things that we are designed as humans to do um, when we're asleep, um, physiological and um, and cognitive processes that happen in both of those, and we just we, what we've done is we've just shifted it where we spend more time awake and less, less time asleep. So that's where our problems lie is where we're doing different things. Um, our, our circadian rhythm isn't matching what we're <laughs> supposed to be doing. But in terms of what actually happens, you know, there's um, there's brain processes. So the biggest the sort of one of the most popular theories at the moment around why we sleep, because everyone still disagrees. Um, of course scientists do. Um, but one of the biggest theories is that it's a, it's a time sleep is a time where the brain, um, is essentially cleared out of things it doesn't need. Um, so you build up these chemicals, um, in the brain, um, in particular we build up adenosine, we build up some other other chemicals and other sort of waste products, Um, That happen as a function of being awake and using your brain all day. And at night, it's a time to clear those out and and get the the brain ready for the next day. And the simplest way to describe that is the brain fog we have when we're really sleep deprived. Um, It's like our brain just doesn't work as well. So there's cognitive things that happen when we're asleep um, to, to repair the brain. And then there's physiological things that happen. Um, There's some, you know, obviously some hormone release that, that um, occurs in terms of repair. Um, And then it's just a time of, you know, lower heart rates, um, you know, our blood pressure is very different. Our core temperature changes throughout the night. So it's just a period of recovering from the day, repair, do some repair processes, getting us ready for the next day.
2: Which is why, as you know, as a, a professor, the best way to prepare for an exam is to wait until two days beforehand and then pull two all nighters and drink a lot of caffeine.
1: <laughs> I think it's pretty common. <laughs>
2: so, you're saying that's not the best approach if you want to actually remember anything?
1: Yeah. And look, there's now some pretty good science around that to say that, you know, the thing that we know most about when it comes to sleep deprivation is the effects it has on the brain. And part of that is from studies around fatigue. Like, you know, you don't want tired pilots. You don't want t- tired truck drivers. You don't want t- um, tired train drivers. Right. So i guess get, generally you don't want any drivers that are tired Um, and so a lot of work that has gone on has been in that cognitive space to understand why reaction time um, is affected and how it's affected and how long you have to be awake so we've got some really good information on that and um, now the next stage of research that's happened over the last few years is exactly that it's around learning Um, and so it's hard to teach people new things when they're sleep deprived um, and it's also hard um, to if someone is sleep deprived to get them to retain that information so if you have someone if you're if they're sleeping well and you're trying to teach them someone new, something new that's great um, but if they're not if they can um, either have a nap after they've learned something so you know you can schedule your training sessions in a certain way um, if they can have a nap after that that can help reinforce what they've learned but super important for memory learning cognition you know the brain in general and of course add mood and you know um you know depression anxiety add all that into the mix and yeah the brain is the brain is where it's at a lot in terms of in terms of sleep.
2: So something that doesn't seem to be black or white in the research. It seems like there there's research pointing in both directions is does a bad night of sleep affect performance? Uh, I know you cited several studies that shows that it does. I have read studies that show one poor night of sleep, you can still pretty much, you're not going to be the happiest person. People might not want to talk to you, but you can still pretty much perform at your best.
1: Yeah, and look, I think that's a really good thing to bring up because one, the research is conflicting um, and and I'll explain the reason for that. And two, I think it's important for people to know that generally speaking, one bad night is not the end of the world. The body's pretty good at going into um, a deep, the um, deep sleep the next night. So you know what it's like—you've had a terrible night, and the next night you usually sleep pretty deep and pretty good. Um, and so what we don't want people to do, especially athletes, is to get really overly stressed and anxious because that's not good for sleep um, when if they're particularly worried about, um, about this, about having one bad night, we want them to know that you probably need a few bad nights to, um, to affect your performance. But the reason the research is conflicting is because there's essentially two types of protocols you can use to assess reduced sleep. One is just 24 hours of pure sleep deprivation. Um, And, of course, you see greater effects when you don't have any sleep at all. Um, And, however, in the real world, we don't see that happening very often in athletes. So it's an experimental model that probably doesn't translate very well into the real world. What we see more and where some of the better kinds of research is, is because we see this more in athletes is sort of shortened sleep for several nights in a row. So for example, you usually get eight hours, but you're stressed about something or something's going on in your life and you're getting five hours and they're a bit broken. Um, and you have that for three or four nights, then yes, we'll start to potentially see some performance effects. But the important thing to note is the performance effects that we see are typically driven by an increased perception of effort. So what I say to, to athletes is if it's the night before the Olympic final and you have terrible night sleep, It's only one night, um, so you're probably not going to have too many effects. And the problem is really related to things just feel harder. Your perception of effort is greater. And I'm sure, obviously, I have never lined up an Olympic vital, um, but, you know, the adrenaline, the excitement and the hype in most cases is going to overcome that perception of effort. So what we're really worried about is longer decreased sleep. So if you're someone who, you know, sleeps really well, but has the odd bad night, no problem if you're someone who's all over the place and then starts to have a few really bad nights, you're probably going to be in, be in a bit of a, bit of a spot, but yeah, the, the research differences is really around, you know, the way that they um, they have conducted the the studies.
0: Yeah. From personal experience, I would say the nerves that you have the anxiety over the, the big race, the next day that can often lead at least from my personal experience to a restless um night of sleep the night before and it doesn't affect performance what happens usually to me is that the day after is when i feel really tired or like you say if it's multiple nights in a row consecutive nights in a row that's when y- you start to worry even more because it will affect performance but one night little disrupted sleep doesn't really affect performance from my experience. So good to keep that in mind because you start, uh, the, 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 that competition's the next day, you get a little bit nervous, you go to bed, you're not, um, sleeping that well, you get even more anxious. It's this, it's this bad spiral, but if you keep in mind that it doesn't really affect performance too much, then you, you know, maybe that'll calm you down.
2: I had that conversation with athletes a lot. And I was, I was glad to see you mention this in, in some of your writings because I almost hate it when I hear other coaches or people recommend saying, you know, the night before a big competition, make sure you get a lot of sleep. Because my experience is exactly what Chris said. Most people the night before a big competition are nervous, and they have a hard time getting sleep. Then they had read, well, if you normally get seven hours of sleep, you need to get 10 hours the night before the race. So now, not only are they nervous about the event, they're nervous that they're not getting sleep. There's pressure to perform in their sleep, Sleep. right? (laughs) And it it just kind of cycles to, by the time they get to the start line, they're a wreck. I actually yeah. have, I will quote that research that I read to my athletes saying one night of bad sleep doesn't affect your performance. Okay. And when I know it's an athlete who ha- will struggle with that, I'll go, look, you're not going to sleep well tonight. It's not going to hurt you. You know what? Put on a movie, relax. Yeah. If you can get some sleep, great. If you can't, you're, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And you just got to yeah. take that pressure, Not as Chris said, Not you don't want to just you don't know, want to add the pressure of sleep on top of the pressure of the the event.
0: Yep, yeah. exactly.
1: Yep, 100%. Couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, that's a balance that I – um try to make sure i provide when i'm working with athletes because you have someone come in and telling you how important sleep is and how to fix it and all the things that you need mm-hmm. to do but you don't want them to take it to the point where this becomes something that they you know that they obsess about and you know there are certainly some athletes that will do that that will take every single thing that you say as gospel and will try to um, to make sure that they do everything you know they put too much pressure on themselves and they get obsessed by the numbers and they want to know everything and that isn't always the best the best Best approach, um, and then of course you get athletes who, who are just genetically gifted and don't care. <laughs> so there's you know there's a couple of different sides of the coin.
0: <laughs> well, the 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 fact that we're talking about sleep quality helps us transition maybe to this next section, which is about changing behavior, improving things. Uh, of course, bef- to do that well, you have to assess your sleep. So. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the ways in which people can assess sleep quality.
2: It, before you answer that, I just want to point out something that you, you've written about several times that I thought was, was very interesting, very perceptive, which is you, you said it is education is not enough, that most people know that they need more sleep, so that knowledge, that education isn't enough to change behaviours. So as Chris said, let's talk with first, how how do you monitor?
1: Yeah, and monitoring sleep um, is another one that we could probably do like four podcasts on. Um, but to keep it simple, I guess that what's happening at the moment is there's an emergence of sleep's popular, there's emergence of technologies to uh, that claim or do measure sleep. Uh, They typically go to market without being um, independently validated against the gold standard. So what happens? We get the devices, we do the hard work, we pay for the studies to validate them so we know whether they're good or not. I will say, though, more and more of these, I I used to be of the opinion that we shouldn't go anywhere near some of these commercial devices that you can just buy, you know, over-the-counter However, I think there's some pros to them. I think there's also some negatives. So some of your commercial devices like Fitbits and Whoops and these kinds of things, which we're now starting to get some data around, I think the positives are that they can start a conversation. They can get someone thinking, an athlete thinking about their sleep. They can maybe start to talk to practitioners. And look, if the if the data is not perfect, if it's not hundred percent comparable to the gold standard as long as you're comparing to yourself um, and you're looking for big changes over time you know I think there's there's some uses for them there we obviously for the purpose of research are going to use expensive research grade devices which take a lot of analysis and they're still the the, the techniques that I would typically use even when I work um, with the lead athletes um, so but the commercial devices I think you know we have to know that in general most of these devices overestimate sleep they're good at measuring wake sorry they're good at measuring sleep they're not that good at measuring wake so the more time you spend awake in your sleep so the worse sleepers the more they're going to overestimate sleep so comparing between you know between different people is probably not a great idea but comparing within the the in within the individual over time um, is is okay I mean, there's things like questionnaires um, and diaries that can give you a bit of an indication. There's plenty of them around. Um, And, you know, as long as your athlete um, or you, if you're monitoring yourself are being honest, um, then, you know, they can be really useful as well. Um, You know, there's obviously pros and cons to each of the devices. Um, The research grade ones we know more about. We know their algorithms, that we know how they measure sleep because they've been validated and published. The new commercial devices we don't know that much about. The thing that i do worry with uh, about with some of these commercial devices that either give you a number um, uh, or a readiness score or a recovery score or whatever it might be is there are times when i think they're just that's just not useful um so you could imagine waking up in the morning of the olympic final and saying your recovery score is 20 um out of 100 like mm, it's probably not going to help you um, It's probably going to probably going to do some harm um, and having the numbers every single day that you can, that some people will obsess about, some people may use as an excuse, um, for some people that's just not a good idea. For other people the numbers are motivating and um, can help you um, improve your sleep by t- trying to do better and better all the time, then I think, I think then they can be useful. But I do think there's a proportion of people where having the numbers all the time, is just not a good idea and that's why so many of these devices we see people use them for a month and then they end up in the second drawer um, and don't um, don't get looked at again so some pros and cons i think you just got to work out whether you're someone who likes the numbers whether you're happy to um, just look at yourself you're not comparing across with your teammates or anything like that um and then knowing that okay if I see something that I don't like or that I'm not sure about, you actually go and seek some some professional um, medical help to, to try and move things forward.
2: So you, when you evaluated, um, so you're calling these commercial sleep technologies, CST, when you mm-hmm. were evaluating them, I, I my jaw kind of dropped when I saw this. You said the average difference in total sleep time between CST and, so here's one of these words I'm going to, Polysonography. Polysonography.
0: Thank
1: Polysonography. You. I'm yeah. Going to
2: try. <laughs> it's a good one. You guys said it. So that's, that's the gold standard. That's the, mm-hmm. the research grade. Mm-hmm. So you said the difference between that and CST was 51.5 minutes plus or minus 152 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is half yeah. a night of sleep. Right.
1: Yeah. 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 It's, there's some very high variability. I think the average across all of these devices is somewhere between six and 67 minutes is the average. Um, And again, that's related to the fact that they don't, devices are different, um, and some devices measure wake better than others but generally they don't measure wake very well. They can't. Kind of can't work out, you know, because they're based on movement. It's an accelerometer. It's harder to know um, whether a small movement is wake, whether the person is awake or they're actually just moving within their sleep. So it's a challenge. And that's why I say, you know, um, from a research perspective, we use the ones that I trust as much as possible. They still have the limitations, Um, but yeah, looking within the individual um, is important. And, And the challenge is when I come in with my research grade devices into a team, And they go oh yeah but i've been wearing this device and your device is showing me something completely different that's where it gets messy um and i'm like yeah like i kind of trust mine a bit more but you know we need to that's where you need to know the devices like i need to be on top of all these devices that come out all the time because athletes will get them first and i need to be able to know okay these ones have this particular challenge or they're good in this space but they're not good in that space um, so that's where I think we need to keep on top of the new technology.
2: So which are the ones you'd recommend? And I'm asking aware that you just published a validation study on the the WHOOP that seems to be pretty promising.
1: Yeah. So the thing that when we've got another study coming out soon um, on the WHOOP and the thing, again, like science, it's, it's gray. It's not black and white. But, you know, when we look at sleep, there's two ways of looking at it. There's two stage sleep. Which is if you're awake or if you're asleep, and that's what most of the devices do. But some of them then step into um, making some calculations around four stage sleep, which is the stages of sleep: so stage one, two, three, and REM sleep. So the Whoop is actually pretty good at measuring two stage sleep. Um, so sleep, um, so that you, what, what a typical um, uh, accelerometer would do. When it starts to get into the um, four-stage sleep, so telling you what phases of sleep, it's not quite as good. Um, And so we probably wouldn't go down that path from a research perspective in terms of using that device for for four-stage sleep. Um, the other thing to note is that um, the the score that you know the recovery score you know the the, the score that WOOP gives you that we don't know anything about that so we don't we don't know the algorithms we don't know how they calculate it so when we talk about WOOP we say yep two stage sleep I'd be pretty comfortable using that it compares to um, to research quality devices um, but the problem is is when um, some of the devices keep inferring things Um, but the good news is is um, the sleep laboratory that we work with are working with Woop to improve their algorithms and to keep making it better so um, most of these um, devices will go through second iterations third iterations and they they become better and better um, as they go along but um, yeah we tend to be the um, the people that have to go ahead and do these projects and and you know the other thing is some of these commercial devices you can't access the raw data so, you know, with the watches that we use, we can access the raw data. We can go, oh, that night was, you know, I know what happened there. I know what the mistake is. I'll delete that section, you know. Um, but with these devices, you just get these random numbers generated and then you have to, you know, there's not much you can do with them because we can't access the, the epoch by epoch um, data that we need.
2: So what are some other devices that you would feel relatively comfortable with knowing that no most of us can't use research
1: grade equipment yeah yeah look and again i think it's not so much the devices themselves it's how they're used i mean i don't have a problem with people using um using a fitbit if they're understanding that it's probably overestimating sleep and um that it can be used to um, start a conversation and to get some support. I think there's, I think the Aura Ring has some, has some good potential. I think the Whoops got some, um, you know, some positives there um, as well. I think probably the Fitbit is sort of below those in terms of quality. But again, how are you using it? Who's giving you feedback? You know, if you, whatever device you've got, if you're talking to someone who actually knows what they're doing and tells you how to address your sleep, then that's great because that's not, none of the devices actually do that. So it's like standing on scales at home and the scale and scales telling you, you're overweight. Like, well, oh, that's great, but what am I going to do about it? And these watches do the same. They tell you your metrics, but not how to fix it. Um, and so again, it's talking to someone who knows what they're talking about, who can give you some good, honest feedback and some strategies then to um, improve your sleep. For
0: those of, us that don't actually know what polysomnography is, this gold standard to which you're comparing all of these devices, would you mind just describing what that is, what that involves, and why we can't do that at home?
1: Great question. It's actually it's usually done in a laboratory setting. So it's very controlled. You are very wired up. So there's electrodes um, on the scalp um, to measure brain electrical activity. Um, There's electrodes usually on the side of the face to look at um, eye movement because that's obviously around rapid REM, rapid eye movement. So you can measure that. Usually we have some EMG on the muscles. We we typically do that in athletes um, because they move a lot during sleep and also There's some disorders like restless leg syndrome, where there's a lot of movement. Um, Breathing straps are worn as well, usually two, um, to really accurately measure breathing. And there's usually some ECG on there as well to look at heart rate and heart rate variability. Um, You combine them all together and what you can do, and mainly it's it's mainly based off the brain activity is to um, look at the state that can tell you what stage of sleep um, that you're in, but it's still manually scored. So someone has to score every 30 seconds of data. Um, so it's, a, it's something that um, is expensive. It's not overly practical. Uh, you need real expertise to be able to do that. Um, and so, again, it's the sort of thing where I'd suggest an athlete would only do that if we suspected they had a medical sleep disorder or we use it when we're doing research. So we really want to understand if an intervention is working and you really want that high level detail specific, you know, oh, yes, this nutritional intervention works because it, um, it increases deep sleep. Or um, this nutritional intervention works because they fall asleep faster, and you want a really controlled environment. That's how we would um, we would do it. But it's not a it's probably not a common thing. It's probably not something that um, athletes would do a lot of. Um, except to say, we just published a study in rugby league players that found a relative like a lot a higher proportion of um, of the players that had some sort of mild mild not excessive but just mild um, sleep apnea. Um, and they're very lean. And they're very muscular, but they don't have a lot of body fat, uh, and so that was a little bit higher than we thought. So polysomnography in, in some form we would use um, also to assess um, sleep apnea.
0: Do you mentioned in there that uh, athletes move more in their sleep and there might be more uh, higher prevalence of restless leg syndrome. Do you know why that is? Is there an easy answer to that?
1: Yeah, no, we don't. Um, and that's prob- that's some of the things that we're I mean, I you know, you only have to sit next to an athlete on a bus or a plane and you know, not all of them, but there's a proportion that I would say are kind of twitchy. Um and, <laughs> and uh, I know one of the swimmers I used to work with, he um he used to say he used to wake himself up because he would um he'd be backstroking in his sleep and wow. then he'd hit the wall. Um, and we actually once did a sleep study and we had a cyclist in a sleep lab and it's on video and he's obviously dreaming about winning a stage and he throws his arms up in the air. Nice. It was kind of cool. That's funny. Um, yeah. But I think, look, you know, maybe it's something to do with all the neural activity um, that um, athletes, you know, that they may be experiencing. Um, it may be due to soreness, being uncomfortable. Um, it's still a bit of a question that we haven't got all the answers to, but we do see that some athletes do move around a lot more than um, than the general population.
0: Yes, you are describing me. I, am, <laughs> I wake up most mornings tangled, absolutely tangled in the sheets. My wife, we have a king-size bed. She does not sleep very well, even though yeah. we're four feet apart. Um, so you are describing me. So I know what this is all about. Restless leg syndrome. Yes. You've also described me there too. So don't know if I've, uh, ever won a a stage of the Tour de France in my sleep, but I'll ask my wife.
2: (laughs) I'm sure she has other ways of describing it.
0: (laughs) Yes. Why are you punching me again? (laughs) Well, you also sort of hinted at the fact that and, and Trevor did as well knowledge is not enough here it doesn't change your behavior uh these these devices whether they are accurate or not isn't as maybe important as it the fact that they start a conversation about what can i do how do i change technique what uh behaviors should i or should i not have before bed or or in that time leading up to, to sleep. So perhaps we take the conversation there.
1: Yeah, and look, I think that's um, of all the work that I'm interested in at the moment is, uh, it, it's that it's behavior change. And, you know, anyone trying to change any behavior knows that it's, it's difficult. I mean, you know, you only have to look at the work around trying to get people to exercise more or eat less. You know, it's really hard. We're not going in a good direction. Um, and so knowledge is not always power, right? We know what to do, but how do we um, actually make people or encourage people to make the changes? And I find there's a few times when it's easier than others. Um, so uh, athletes who are maybe injured or who are not getting selected or who are at the end of their careers tend to go, mm, I'm, I'm going to start paying attention and I'm going to start trying to do all the things that I should have done years ago. Um Uh, So sometimes it's when the wheels fall off a little bit that you can really, you know, make some change. I think showing them individual data. These are your numbers measured with the best devices that we have available. Um, And this is how, for example, you might compare to um, someone else in your team who's a really good sleeper and a really good performer. I think comparisons to your peers, um, the successful peers, is something um, that can help. So actually having their own numbers and comparing. And then I think we also have to think about what we do and can we create a better environment to, um, to protect an athlete's sleep. Um, so for example, if um, in a lot of professional football clubs now will have um, a sleep pot, sleep um, pods or sleep areas or bunks or something. So that if you've got two sessions a day and you can't go home to have a, a um, after lunch nap then they've got options to do that there um, let's not have training sessions at a ridiculous hour in the morning um, meaning that they can't um, that they can't get a decent night's sleep um, sometimes you know finances are a problem but if you can um, fly people the night before rather than waking up at you know 3 30 for a start for a flight, um, that can also help. So thinking about um, what we do and how we provide education. Um, So, yes, we do the monitoring and we do some education and we give the individual feedback, but a one-off is probably not enough. So lots of consistent and persistent messages, um, so saying the same things. And for me, like, I often come into Teams and I'm there for a short period of time and then I'm out. So for me, it's more important to educate the people that see the athletes all the time, um, whether that's the you know strength and conditioning coach, the, the soft tissue therapist or whoever it is that's really around these people that can just ask the questions. Um, we can put some education around that's simple and easy to read. Um, you know, I, I often like putting it in recovery spaces where you've got a captured audience um, or, you know, in the gym near the stationary bikes or something where they can see it. Um, so there's this little constant reminders um, all the time of, um, of the things that they need to be doing. And for me, one-off monitoring is good, but it's not everything. So, you know, for me, you know, every six months, you might just do a little one week check up um, and make sure that, you know, everything's going, um, going okay. So I think that is one of the issues as well as sleep's becoming popular, teams are going, Oh, I'm measuring sleep, I'm ticking that box, I'm doing all the right things. Um, but it's not, a one offs, probably not really going to, um, going to, to cut it.
0: So, so when you talk about the education that you need to be consistent and persistent about what are those things that are in that pamphlet or whatever the materials are that you give to these athletes or these teams what does that entail
1: what does it look like yeah i think we we do try to individualize it in some respects um and each team you know some teams might be different to others um, in terms of their challenges um but to be really general i would say things like um going to bed at the same time and waking at the same time as often as you can, that consistency of routine. Um, it's like being jet lagged. If you're going to bed at you know three hours different one night and you know, you're going to bed at 10 o'clock normally and then one night it's 2 a.m. and the next night it's nine o'clock, like just keeping consistent bed and wake times as often as possible. I'm um, keeping a really good eye out on the things that disturb their sleep. Is it caffeine? Is it phone use? Is it computer gaming? Are there things that just creep in to an athlete's sleep time that they can avoid? Um, And my, I say this all the time, and people are probably sick of hearing it from me, but um, I say, you know, don't stay up late for something you wouldn't get up early for. So what I mean by that is, would you stay up? Would you set your alarm for two hours early to watch two episodes of something great on Netflix? No, you would never do that. So why do we stay up two hours late at night to do that? So, you know, there's some things that you have to do and it might be work, it might be study. And yes, you might have to get up early for it. But if there are things that you're voluntarily doing that you would not normally set your alarm in the morning for, reconsider how important it is to to do it at night. Um, so there's things that sabotage sleep. So those things that get in the way, try to be consistent as often as possible um, and try to manage or deal with any stresses um, as good as you can. And, you know, that can go from a range of, you know, maybe you'd need some breathing exercises um, and, you know, you would, need to meditate or whatever that may be all the way through to, you know, there's an anxiety disorder here that needs to be addressed by a professional Um, And often because we obviously we know that stress and anxiety aren't great for sleep, um, so we want to make sure that we're we're addressing that so. um, I I think they're they're really the the key things. The other one, I guess, is to um, make sure your bedroom environment is optimal for sleep. Is it cool dark and quiet. Um, you know the number of times uh, you know athletes say to me, oh, I felt, you know I forgot to close the curtains, or you know the um, the next door neighbours were really noisy, or my or, or the, the classic is they just leave their phone on all night, um, and the, the you know oh but it's on vibrate. I'm like yeah that will also wake you up, um, and so we actually had we did a study on rugby union players, uh, one of my PhD students did, and um, in this proper sleep lab all wired up. And they were allowed to have their phones in the room as long as it was on, um, on silent. But of course, many of them had it on vibrate, which still woke them up. So um, if you're still going to use your, you still want your phone on in a sleep lab, you know, there's probably something not quite right there. Um, So yeah, try to, and and again, like I say, it's not rocket science. All this stuff is everything we know. It's all the things your mum taught you as a kid. It's not that difficult, Um, but it's just getting people to make those little changes, put your phone in, Um, the bathroom. Put your phone on airplane mode, your alarm will still go off. Um, You know, there's things that you can try to do to just take away that temptation. Set up your environment better. It's like not having junk food in the fridge. Set your environment up better so you're less likely to be tempted by your phone.
0: Yeah, I absolutely find that if I have a, a policy of not having my phone anywhere near me, even on the yeah. same floor of my house when I'm sleeping. But if for yeah. some reason it ends up in the room or I know it's around, it, it definitely disrupts how I think about sleep that night.
2: Oh, why limit that to sleep? I'd like to have that policy 24 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Pro cyclist Erica Clevenger leaves nothing to chance when it comes to getting quality sleep. She offers some insights on how she optimizes her own routine.
4: I don't think I'm saying anything new when I say that sleep is very incredibly important. I would choose sleep over a lot of other different recovery strategies for sure. It's definitely a huge part of my training plan, actually, Um, in my mind is sleep. And it's actually something I've put a lot of work into this summer Um, with all the, you know, the lack of racing that we've had. I've had a little bit more time to um, spend um, a little bit more energy on trying to figure out how to really optimize my sleep.
0: How do you optimize sleep? What do you do?
4: Sleeping in like a cool, dark place. For example, this summer we we uh, installed a ceiling fan in, in our room just so that I have it's a little bit cooler in there. Um actually put in a blackout curtain in my room as well. and so very dark um, actually in there. and I think that that really helps. I also have a humidifier in my room just because it's so dry in Colorado and because of my asthma, sometimes I struggle to sleep. Um, and then really establishing a good like sort of bedtime routine is something I've also really tried to work on. and I struggle with it because we don't always have a good routine because you know if you're a racer um, and a grad student like I am, you're traveling or you're doing a lot of different things on campus and it's hard to establish a routine, but a bedtime routine is definitely one of the things that I really focus on. And every night before bed, I really like reading and um, it really helps me sort of relax.
2: Here's the question I have for you, because all this advice that you were bringing up is great. I, I do. I, I got a good laugh out of this in, in one of your reviews. You talked about the five common errors that we make in trying to change behavior and number one on your list was appealing to common sense <laughs> which yeah. like i said i got a good laugh out of it, basically if, if you're trying to change somebody's behavior trying to appeal to their common sense not a good strategy
1: <laughs> does <work>. which yeah. <laughs> is which is
2: what we're doing here and so that you get a good laugh out of that but i'll give you an example i actually this year Had an athlete, one of her goals was to improve her sleep. So we talked about it. I said, how much sleep are you getting? Oh, five, six hours a night. How much would you like to get? I'd like to get eight hours a night. I asked her why. Well, I'm not training well. I have a hard time focusing at work. I'd be more productive. I'd be more effective if I got more sleep. And for a couple months, we had this kind of broken record conversation where every week when we would talk, it'd be the same conversation. How do things go with changing your sleep? Uh, the strategy I gave her is: look, just start doing it. Hmm. Go to bed. She's like, I said, what? What does it look like for you if you're getting to sleep? You want? She's like, I want to be in bed, like winding down by 9:30, in bed by 10. So I went, okay, this mm-hmm. week start doing that. And you could, you could almost just, even though we're on the phone, I could almost just hear her tense up and go, but, but no. Mm. And so the, you know, we'd have our next call. How'd it go? Oh, I never was able to get to bed by 10. Why? Oh, just, I have work. I have all these other things. I go, but why do you want more sleep? Well, because I'm not very productive with my work. <laughs> so if you got more sleep, you'd be more productive, and then you'd be able to get more sleep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so this week, I want you to try to go to bed, wind down at 9.30, no matter what, just stop at 9.30, go to bed by 10. Okay, I'll try. And the same conversation the next week. This went on mm. for months. So that's your... I was trying to appeal to common sense. So we all know this. She knew this, but when it yeah. came down to take action, I could just hear mm. I would say take the action. You could just hear her the 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 gears going in her head of, but no, I can't do that. I can't actually yeah. do that. So how what is that final step to get the athlete to say, No, I am gonna do that?
1: Yeah, look, that's a great question. I wish I had a really Equally as good answer, um, but what I, in my experience, um, small changes that are achievable um, over time is kind of what we, what we need. So I had a rower, not a bad, not a dissimilar example, um, but he was like, "There's no way I can go to bed before ten thirty. Just couldn't go to bed. I'm not tired. It wouldn't happen." And I looked at his data from his sleep watch, and I was like, "You fall asleep in either zero or one minute." As soon as you put your head on the pillow, you're out. And that tells me you're sleep deprived. It tells me that you can likely go to bed earlier. Now, I get up early. I would have loved him to go to bed at 9.30, even 9 9.00. o'clock. Um, but so I, my suggestion to him was let's go with 15 minutes. He's like, oh, I don't know. He had it in his head, he couldn't sleep before ten thirty, <laughs> and he was like, just this week, and maybe you won't nail it the first night, but just for a week, just try be in bed by ten, like be in bed ten fifteen, and of course he could do it, um, and so that sort of worked for a bit, and then we added another fifteen minutes, and so I think if it's a big chunk that they can't, it just seems too hard. Um, then I think that can be a challenge. Um, and the other thing that I have found a little a, a little bit successful maybe and mainly for athletes that struggle to fall asleep. And it sounds completely counterintuitive, but it's what's done in the insomnia literature is don't go to bed until you're actually sleepy because what happens is people hop into bed and then they get frustrated that they can't sleep. Um, and so, putting a set time like it, you know, if a swimmer's got to get up at eight and se- uh, sorry, at six, and they're saying you well, you really need to be in bed at, at eight o'clock at night to get the sleep that you need, it's not going to happen because they're likely not even sleepy then. Um, and so, encourage, especially if they've got if if they're people that are a bit overthinkers and they hop into bed and all they do is think oh well i'm supposed to be asleep now but they're absolutely not sleepy it'll derail things so going to bed when they're actually sleepy because then they're they're more likely to hop in bed and just sleep rather than hop in bed and go I'll check out my phone. I'm gonna pop the TV on. I'm gonna game. Um, so that can be a useful strategy as well. But to get athletes to just engage can be really hard. And my experience, the better they are, the highly, the higher paid they are, the more genetically gifted they are, it can be harder um, because they've got <laughs> where more they've got sp- and
0: strong-headed. Yes.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
2: Well, you just touched on one I was going to ask you about because I, I am somebody who has always struggled with insomnia. And I've mostly found my routine for it. But the one thing I've never been able to solve is I generally don't go to to bed until about midnight. I would love to go to bed at 11. But the fact of the matter is every time I've tried to go to bed by 11, that kicks in the insomnia. And then I'm still awake at 2 o'clock. So I'd rather lose the hour of sleep but know I I can lie down at midnight and fall asleep. So is that just a, a deal with it? That's the best you can do? Or is there strategies for people like me?
1: it's probably a couple of things, you know, to think about. I like the idea of being flexible around your sleep. And I know that's completely counterintuitive to what I said about routines, um, but knowing that, okay, you know, if I will go to bed half an hour earlier or later, you know, within a short time span, it's probably okay. Because I think people who get really rigid about their thinking around sleep can um, can be problematic, can get into some some problems. The other thing is, you know, short little um changes so like you know going to bed trying to go to bed at quarter to midnight or whatever it might be but still going to bed whenever you are um sleepy but one of the i think one of the best things and you know it might be something you're trying already but i've seen some pretty good success with this is um having a pre-bed routine so an example might be cleaning your teeth having a shower clean your teeth read a book whatever those three things are. And you just repeat them over and over and over again. And it becomes a bit like a, a, you know, a classical conditioning response where the body goes, Oh, clean, had a shower, clean teeth, reading a book. I know what's going to happen next. It's sleep. Um, and what happens is the, you blo- your blood pressure drops, your physiology changes. Cause this, it, this expectation, you know, the body loves routine. Um, so if you can pick a few things, um, and you know, some people that might I worked with a, an ex uh, U.S. special forces um, uh, soldier who was a mess, sleep a mess, and um, for him the scent was um, eucalyptus oil because it was it was a scent that he used to wash his kids' hair with, um, and that was enough to just trigger this you know, relaxation response, this I'm in a good place. Um, so he'd clean his teeth, he'd shove everything down, he'd check his, you know, security, his front door, and then he'd smell some eucalyptus. And that turned him from someone who needed, you know, sleeping tablets and the most unbelievable range of medication into someone I would say now is one of the best sleepers I've ever seen. And all it was was just finding this habitual um series of things that he could do and he now can take it wherever he goes, traveling, you know, whatever.
0: Lucky guy that he found that.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> worked worked for him. Yeah.
2: <gasps> Former pro cyclist Cameron Cogburn addresses the idea that every individual has a more natural bent towards being either a night owl or an early bird, and has some tips and tricks that you might like to try to improve your sleep hygiene.
5: I've had periods where I, I'm a really good sleeper, and then periods where I don't like my natural tendency is I'm very much a night owl. And so that really kind of clashed with when I was riding full time. I mean, I would sleep from 2am to noon. That's the best I could manage. Like I was getting 10 hours of sleep every day, but I was sleeping till noon every day. It's always been really hard for me to do these early morning. Now, like to, to get on a consistent schedule and, and, and optimize my sleep such that I can day in, day out, you know, have a consistent sleep schedule. The times I have come closest to achieving this, one of the biggest tips I've, I've heard and I probably need to employ is that I had a uh, colleague who used to set an alarm at 8 p.m. every night. And he would start getting ready for bed then. So 8 p.m. The alarm goes off. He would put away the laptop, put away the electronics. He had excellent sleep hygiene. I think also cooling down the room helps immensely. It helps bring down your core temperature to a level that you have optimized sleep cycles. So having that cool room can make a huge difference. Uh, personally, I have blackout curtains in the bedroom uh, I think light is you know I'm very light sensitive uh, light will just energize me so blackout curtains in the bedroom and eye shade even even though I bat it off most nights um, just having it there can help especially you get used to it such that when you're on the road you know you're not it's not something new so the eye shade earplugs as well Uh, And then finally, yeah, devices, put them away. You know, you can use apps like Flux or Night Shift. Finally, I think setting a consistent uh, wake up time at a certain time and just start getting up at that time. And the first week might be rough, but your body will eventually adapt and, you know, you'll start getting up regularly and getting tired at the appropriate time at night.
0: I wonder if in a best case scenario, in an ideal world, we would all find that perfect pattern of sleep without these, for lack of (laughs) a better term, tricks. So some people naturally, correct me if I'm wrong, but naturally seem to be night owls and other people seem Mm -hmm. to be early risers or early birds. And, I wonder if there's truth to that and also how you would suggest somebody go about finding what their circadian rhythm Mm. should dictate their sleep pattern be.
1: Yeah. So there definitely is evidence of um, morning, evening and neutral people. And then even in between those. Um, So there's a questionnaire Um, aptly named the morningness eveningness questionnaire Um, that's super easy you can find it on the internet easy to score Um, it just asks you a series of questions around your preferences Um, and yeah that'll give you an indication of what you are we found we looked at the chronotype of elite athletes and we found and they're mainly olympic athletes and we found that the majority are early morning to neutral Um, we don't, we didn't see many night owls at all in these and unsurprising, if you're a night owl, you're probably not going to last as a swimmer or a rower or a (laughs) triathlete. Um, but yeah, simple ways that people can go and look and, um, and see what they are. Um, and the thing that I think people sort of get into the trap of doing then is trying to change it. And it's not really possible. Um, it's, it it is, you know, from the evidence seems to suggest that it's, you know, on average, most people are pretty much genetically, Um, predetermined and it's not one of those things that you can turn yourself from an early morning person into a night owl
0: why would that be genetically predetermined what would be the reason in terms of evolution for that
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and again uh, this is only one aspect yeah that i've heard of and i don't know if this is true but this is one i've that i've heard of is that um if we you know if you're in a tribal situation and you're um, you know you're living off the land whatever it might look like you don't want everyone to be sleeping at the same time you want some people awake to protect your group um, early in the morning um, and you want some people who are still awake late at night to protect the group Um, so there's certain benefits to having people being able to sleep um, preferentially at different times so um yeah, that's one of the reasons I've heard. And I thought, oh, yeah, that actually kind of that resonated, made a little bit of sense to me. But I'm sure there's other reasons out there, but that's one of the ones that I've heard a, a number of times.
2: I've actually read that research, and, and that is what I've seen a lot in the yeah. the, the, the Paleolithic research, that yeah. you needed people awake at all times mm-hmm. to, to help protect the yep. tribe. So there help there protect. was a benefit mm-hmm. to it.
0: Even without mm-hmm. the Netflix, there were some night owls just staying up <laughs> watching out for, you know, enemy, yeah. enemy tribes, hanging whatever, out, doing, hanging out doing their thing and look, sitting <laughs> by the fireplace. <laughs> your,
2: your question about, can you ever change? I'm a night owl. I coached a team, as you know, called the morning glory cycling club for four years. All their rides were at five thirty AM. Yuck. Yeah. Four years, multiple times a week. I was getting up to coach that ride and even after four years, oh. every single time I would wake up at 4.55 and go, not make it at today. What I'm am calling I doing in <laughs> And I And my routine, honestly, get to the ride. It was 10 minutes to bike from my apartment to the ride. So I knew I needed to be out the door by 5.20, which means I needed to get changed by 5.10, which meant my alarm went off at 4.55. I would take 10 minutes to sit on my couch and hate life <laughs> and, and convince myself not to go back to bed, five minutes yeah. to quickly eat some food, then get changed and go. Yeah. And four Painful. years. Painful. I, I, it yeah. never yep. got a little bit easier. Little
1: bit, no. I, yeah, that's the middle of the night to me too, so that's, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be exciting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes. So now that we've all clarified how much our sleep is uh unhealthy. Okay, well let's turn our attention to maybe some myths about sleep. Um one, we have to bring this up Trevor because we're cyclists and and you and I have both heard this for years. It's kind of a uh, urban legend about the the messed Belgians with teammates
2: minds <laughs> on this one. Yes.
0: So Dr. Halston, is there any truth to the fact that you shouldn't sleep with plants in the room because they suck the oxygen out of the room and it disrupts sleep?
1: Do you know what? I have heard that. I have not seen any evidence <laughs> okay. um, to support it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, But when you think, you know, the amount of carbon dioxide that plants produce is nothing compared to, a, a, you know, a human um, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one. I haven't seen any any data to support it. So can't say. I respect I like you for
0: uh, <laughs> giving a scientific answer to that and, and talking uh-huh. about data.
2: I had a teammate. I think he was 21, but we all nicknamed him Junior. I'll leave him nameless because he... He was gullible? Gullible, a <laughs> little, little young for his age. And so we convinced him of that myth that he couldn't have plants. So we noticed that if we went to hotel rooms where there was plants, he would get them out of his room. So we got really mean, and we would go out and get plants and put them in his bedroom (laughs) when he was sleeping just to mess with him.
1: Just to mess with him. Nice. I love it.
0: Well, let's let's turn our attention to maybe something a little bit more serious. Uh, Pharmacotherapy. Is there anything, uh, any truth to... The fact that these help or hurt your sleep
1: yeah and it's a good question and i actually have got a study planned for next year to look at the effects of sleep medication in athletes on sleep architecture we would have had it done this year except for COVID. but and the reason why it's important for us is because there's not a single study that has ever looked at what happens to sleep architecture so the phases of sleep when Um, uh, when sleep medication is given to athletes. There's some information in the general population that there's less deep sleep with certain types of sleep medications. Um, There's also evidence, of course, they can become habit-forming depending on which type, and there's also some evidence that there may be cognitive issues in the morning, Um, so you know feelings of grogginess, headache, hangover effects. So um, my preference always, and and look, I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't, you know, delve into these realms too much from a recommendation perspective i'm more like to investigate um, but my perspective is that natural sleep you know every every medication has a side effect so um, you know if we can get natural sleep and encourage natural sleep that's certainly the way forward because we just don't understand enough about sleep medication in athletes i think there's a place for them you know if you're someone that's not going to get any sleep or you may be experiencing some jet lag and you're just trying to get some sleep um, but i think it's definitely something that um, you know a lot of sports doctors that i work with now are really cautious about their use um, and keep them for you know really strict um, certain conditions.
0: Uh, and are you including things like melatonin here or is that a different category?
1: Yeah. Melatonin is probably a different category. It's you tend to get more natural sleep. Um, it tends to not disturb sleep architecture as much, but again, we need to remember that while it has soporific effects, so it makes you sleepy. Um, melatonin also has body clock shifting effects. So it's not the sort of thing that you probably want to wake up in the middle of the night and take. Um, so it's, we do keep that one separate.
0: And can you become habituated
1: to that? Um, it's interesting. Some people talk about, it being sort of habit forming. So you become a little bit dependent, whether that's not really a physiological thing, it's, it's, it's more you feel like you need it to actually sleep. And if you don't have it, you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't seem to have the more addictive properties of, of some of the other, you know, the older, more heavy duty sleep medications um, that used to be um, more common.
0: And what about uh, blue light
2: and general device usage. Yeah, before
0: you go yeah ahead. Some yeah. of these things have been getting a lot of press. What, what press. do you, what do you say about yeah. these?
1: Yeah, and um, look, I there, there have been a couple of studies that, you know that. Uh, sort of go either way um but i think and i was involved in one that sort of suggested it may not be as bad in athletes but um importantly to note we didn't use polysomnography in that study we didn't use the gold standard it was sort of a it was a study that was done in a in elite population where we where we couldn't do it so i still am someone who thinks that minimizing blue light just based on the mechanism um, of the body clock and where it is and how it Light through the eyes can affect it, especially blue light. Um, I think it's worth minimising that um, as much as as much as possible. Even though the science is, you know, some studies, yes, yeah, some studies, no, but I think the definitive, the higher quality studies are the ones that have used polysomnography. Um, and so I, I still recommend steering clear of the of the blue light if possible.
2: Now, what about just general device usage? Should we be turning devices off several hours before we go to bed? I, I did. Notice in your study, you said that there's actually even some evidence that uh, using some devices used effectively can get people to calm down and relax and actually help them fall asleep.
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the type of device that we're talking about. You know, if it's computer gaming and it's very competitive and you're playing against someone, you know, and especially athletes get a bit competitive, um, then that can be quite bad. Um, And, you know, social media can be something that's really stressful for people. Um, And so I think it depends on the device and what you're doing. Um, If you're listening to relaxing music, I mean, You know, we're so used to using music athletes are to pump them up before the game or in training, like if you're using it for the opposite and helping you to wind down or you're listening to something, some sort of meditation or mindfulness or breathing activities, then great. Um, So I think it does depend on what you're doing and and how you're using it. But if it's something that has a stimulatory effect, then um, yes, probably not something that um, is a good idea before bed.
0: Well, Dr. Halson, uh we like to close out every episode of Fast Talk with our take-home messages, sort of recapping the episode to, and giving our listeners the most important messages. So I'd like to start with you. What would you say is the, the most important take-home messages about or, or that we've discussed in this episode today?
1: I think the most important ones, and sort of where I'm at at the moment, is um, measurement of sleep can be useful. Um, it's what that it's what you do with the data that's most important. Um, and you know, how do we engage in effective behaviour change? What start to think about what the things that we can do to get whether it's ourselves or our athletes. Um, creating a good environment what's the education what the things that we need to do to help um move them forward because the education and the monitoring is useful um but not 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 it's not enough on its own
0: it's interesting that we put so much emphasis on our training and oftentimes we don't put an equal amount of emphasis or an equal importance on recovery generally and sleep specifically I'm one of those people that feels like if you're training really hard, you need to sleep quote unquote really hard. You need to um, balance those two things. Train hard, sleep harder, sleep longer, sleep better. Do everything you can to get sleep because it is so critical. If you're going to sacrifice sleep quality or quantity or if it's been disrupted, you should consider doing fewer interval sessions or maybe reducing the length of the ride a little bit um, because your body won't be primed to take advantage of that workload if it doesn't get the sleep it needs. It's such a critical component here. So I was really fascinated by this discussion today, and I hope everybody gets a better night's sleep after hearing some of what Dr. Hulson and our other guests had to say. Trevor, what do you think?
2: Well, so first of all, something I have to admit to you that's either going to impress you or horrify you. <laughs> uh, last week, I had one of my bouts of insomnia, and I learned a long time ago, when you are dealing with insomnia, don't lie in bed and, and try to fall asleep. Don't fight it, yeah. Yeah. Just get out of bed, go do something. So, I was at the time reading your research. So, I <laughs> have to have admit sleep? to you that I was <laughs> up until three o'clock in the morning reading your research about the importance of sleep.
1: Uh, well, it could be worse. It could be, at least hopefully, that was some of some use. But yeah, I think you got to find what works for you. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, my one minute. Talking as a coach who's worked with athletes who have asked questions about sleep and just thinking about the most common questions I get are, A, don't make it another stressor in your life. Yes, you want to improve sleep. You you want to get enough sleep, but sometimes that just doesn't happen. Particularly, we get stressed before big events, which are going to affect our sleep. Don't make that an additional stressor. You can handle in the short run some loss of sleep, and still perform. Uh, the, the other thing that I, the theme that I got from all that reading until 3 o'clock in the morning that I found really interesting was the fact that at this point, everybody's aware that they need sleep. It's the change in the behavior. And how many of us know it and don't do anything about it. So if you have made the commitment to say you want to improve your sleep, make those those graduated changes do what was just suggested in this episode of start going to bed 10 minutes earlier start start turning devices off sooner just start making those little changes and see what it does that was another
0: episode of fast talk As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fasttalklabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Shona Halson, Dr. James Hull, Cameron Cogburn, Eric Clevenger, and Trevor Conner, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.